It seems winter is getting longer and more brutal every single year. Whether that be due to global warming, or that's just how it goes, I guess. I don't know. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends. It's good to see you made it back for another episode. Today, I'm going to be covering a topic I haven't done in the past. Today, these viewers sent in some creepy and allegedly true snowstorm horror stories that will freak you out, no doubt. If you live in a cold area and you have a story that you would like to share in a future video, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going. Joining me today is my good friend, The Creepy Fox. He helped me read some of these stories in this video, and if you enjoyed his voice, please be sure to check his channel out and subscribe. There will be a link to do so in the description down below. Now, let's get into these creepy and allegedly true snowstorm horror stories. If you live in the northeastern part of the United States, then you know that a huge snowstorm came in this week. Well, I was at my boyfriend's house and we could not find his puppy in his backyard. We kept calling his name, but he would not come to us like he always does. In fear that he somehow got out of the gated backyard, I grabbed my snow boots and ran to the back door that is in the kitchen. To note, my boyfriend was standing by the back door looking for the dog and his dad was at the front door talking to a postal delivery driver. We were the only three inside the house. I put on the snow boots and then hopped from one side of the kitchen to the other while trying to put the other boot on. As I slipped on the second boot, my foot slipped under me because my boots were still wet. I landed hard on my knee and my other leg flew out in front of me. I then landed on my butt and knew I was going to then fall backward and land on my head. At that moment, I felt someone catch my upper back and shoulders with their hands and then squeeze my shoulders. It kept me from falling backward and slamming my head against the tile floor. My boyfriend was standing in front of me and has a broken foot, so he would never have made it in time to catch me, so I assumed it was my boyfriend's dad. His dad asked if I was okay and what happened. I didn't think much of it and laughed it off as my knee was bruised. Later that night, my boyfriend's mom came home from work and I was telling her how her husband saved me from a bad fall. My boyfriend then cut me off and said his dad did not come into the kitchen until after I fell and that he did not know what I was talking about. We even confirmed this with his dad as he, well, stated that he saw me sitting on the floor and came to check on the dog. I have no idea what I experienced or what could explain what I experienced. All I know is that I fell hard and for whatever reason, something saved me from possibly getting really hurt. I cannot explain why I felt someone catch me or why they squeezed my shoulders after they caught me. Can anyone explain this experience? Or does anyone have any similar experiences? Also, the dog was fine. He was digging holes in the snow where we could not see him. This story happened to me about six years ago, but I think about it frequently because it's the only paranormal thing I ever witnessed that I'm 100% sure was absolutely real. I cannot help thinking, maybe someone has had a similar experience or has some theories. 
So, it was the middle of the winter, and it was terribly cold. There was a huge snowstorm going on outside. I went to my kitchen to make myself some tea. It was about 2300 hours. Note that I am used to going to bed between 3 and 4 a.m., so I was not sleepy at all yet. I was approaching the table when my gaze accidentally fell on the street outside. I saw two men in dark clothes walking there along the road. They struck me as unnatural right away because of how they were walking. Calmly, slowly, leisurely, talking and gesturing to each other. With how strong the wind was, people just could not walk like that. I adjusted the curtain to get a better look. It hid the men from view for less than a second, and when I looked, they were gone. The road they were walking is long and surrounded by absolutely nothing. They just could not hide anywhere during that split second. I was shocked and curious. The next night I checked again but saw no one. The night after that, though, I saw them again. The same men were walking in a similar snowstorm, just as slowly. I stared at them for a while, then I moved the curtain again just out of curiosity, and then they were gone once again. I have never seen them again after this, though. I still check the street every now and then whenever I approach the window and it's snowing outside. My impression is that I somehow peeked into the other reality where it is not cold and saw ordinary men walking and going on their way, but who knows what it really was. I did see some other strange things during my lifetime, but nothing I can fully be sure of. I am not easily impressionable, and I try to find an explanation for everything. This is the only case where I cannot find a reasonable answer. Maybe some of you have some ideas as to what they may be. I do not know much about paranormal activities, not in depth, so maybe such sightings are not so rare. Rory and I were halfway up Cross Couloir, a huge snowshoot on the eastern side of Colorado's Mountain of the Holy Cross, when the snowstorm rolled in, almost a whole day early. That's when we knew we were in serious trouble. A few days prior, the TV weather forecast had told a completely different story. It reported a clear weather window well within our Thanksgiving break, which was one of our only opportunities to tick off Mount of the Holy Cross from our climbing bucket list. We'd already bagged several of Colorado's mountains that winter. We'd been eyeing the Holy Cross's steep, snow-filled couloir for the previous year. Our plan was to stash some overnight gear at a base camp, only a few miles from the start of our climb. From there, we'd go for the snowshoot, and then hike out once it was night. We had planned to start the climb in the afternoon when the snow was just about soft enough to provide our boots with grip. So we arrived at the base of the snowshoot at approximately noon. About 300 feet up, the snow was way deeper than expected, but the sky was a clear blue. We were on schedule, and the climb didn't seem like it was going to be too taxing. Additionally, we knew we'd have cell service on top of the peak, we didn't expect to need it, but it was considered a safety net. We were right about the cell service, but wrong about the two-hour climb. The higher we went, 
the deeper the snow became. Soon, it was loose and powder, all the way to the rock bed beneath. We were now moving more slowly than expected, but if the weather held, we'd still make it up before dark. A few hours into the climb, slogging upward within the steep couloir walls, we didn't even notice the dark clouds moving in from the west. The first snows came about halfway through the afternoon. By 5.30, it was pounding down, with the wind drowning out our attempts to communicate. If there was ever a time to quit, that was it. But behind us, the snow was kicked out and slick from our climbing, way too unstable for any kind of descent. So we went with our only viable option, pushing on toward the summit and descending the much easier north ridge as quickly as we could manage. We tried to focus on keeping calm and pushing onward as darkness fell around us. The blizzard flashed through our headlamp beams and pelted our faces with ice. When I looked down at Rory, the terrified look in his eyes perfectly matched how I felt. By the time we finally reached the summit, around seven that evening, we figured the worst was over. We called our parents and told them everything was fine and that we were going to commence the hike down. But when we looked around, we saw only sheer drop-offs and total darkness. There was no way for us to find our descent, which is dangerously easy to miss, even in daylight. Plus, the wind up top was blowing something fierce, making it equally hazardous to approach any steep drops. With no choice but to hunker down, we settled under an overhanging lip of rock below the summit to wait out the storm. We had what we were wearing, goose down jackets, insulated pants, hats, and gloves, plus a little food and water. We prayed that it would be enough for us to survive, but despite our pleas to the Almighty, conditions soon worsened. Strong winds tore through our improvised shelter, and our feet grew agonizingly cold. We took off our boots and socks and put our feet in each other's armpits, massaging our toes to keep the feeling in them. I couldn't get my mind off of thinking about how my parents would react to the news that we died up there that night. That's when the severity of our situation started to really dawn on me. We'd been feeling pretty cocky up until this point, but now I was truly frightened. Temperatures dropped to minus 20 degrees with the wind chill that night. I stopped shivering, a sign of hypothermia, but Rory and I stayed positive, and I'm convinced that, that was the only thing that got us through that night. I must have drifted off because the next thing I remember, the sun's warmth washed over us. Thankfully, the storm had passed, but the descent was still hard to find. We saw several ridges, and at the bottom of one, we spotted what looked like East Cross Creek, which we'd walked along two days before. We rappled toward it, thinking we were home free. But when we reached the creek, we realized that we'd accidentally gone down the south ridge, the opposite direction of the trailhead, and the one thing we didn't want to do, since at that point we lost all of our cell service. On the summit the night before, we worried about surviving. Now we were just annoyed with ourselves, low on food, and tired as hell. 
Still, we were confident we'd find our way out. Below the tree line, we managed to pick up a trail that took us to a spot we thought we recognized as the east side of the mountain. We weren't ready to admit that our delirious minds may have been playing tricks on us. We followed faint trails through the forest, turning here and there, as the compass dictated, but we always ended up back where we started. We later found out that locals call the area the Bermuda Triangle of the Rockies. Iron deposits in the rocks can throw off magnetic instruments, and our compass was taking us in circles. We knew we should have stayed put to wait for rescue, but we couldn't. With water-soaked boots, it was either move or lose appendages to the frostbite. Our optimism was running dry. I'd start to feel a frog in my throat, but in those moments you'd have to either crack a joke or cry. So we messed around, talked about girls, sang along to Zeppelin songs, and laughed about whatever we could. Any distraction to keep us going. As the sunset went down on our second unplanned night out, we gathered a tinder and took out our lighters. But to our absolute horror, they remained waterlogged with a snowmelt. Despite our efforts to dry them, neither of us could get anything, so much as a spark out of either of them. By this point, Rory was too weak to continue, so I piled pine branches on the snow for us to spoon on top of. We managed to laugh at a few cuddle jokes, but we were starting to realize that our families didn't know if we were alive. That made it tough to keep things light. Soon we both stopped shivering, and neither of us could feel our feet. Matt turned to me. Dude, we could die out here, he said. I'm okay with it because I'm still glad to not be on the couch playing video games, but this is much earlier than I thought it'd be. I'm not ready. We laid in silence. Rory fell asleep with his head on his right hand, a position that would cut off circulation, just enough to give him frostbite in his thumb. Again, temperatures dropped below freezing, and again we woke up in the morning, somehow still alive. We had been hiking along when we saw a helicopter. It was distant, but for us it took up the whole sky. Numb feet forgotten, we ran into a meadow, and I waved a jacket and a trekking pole with a bright red hat on it. The chopper flew past us. It circled back four times before flying off. We felt like we'd watch our last chance vanish. That's when we finally broke down. There was nothing to say. Rory just laid his head on my lap, and we both sobbed. An hour later, the helicopter returned. It had only turned back to refuel, and this time it came straight towards us. We couldn't stop smiling. It was finally over. I was so elated I tried to hug a rescuer, who just threw me onto a jump seat and strapped me in. We were told to look for bodies, he said. As soon as we flew off, I could feel the adrenaline drain out of me. My whole body was in pain. I'd been too numb to feel until now. But still, I'd never felt better. It was honestly one of the lowest, then highest points of my entire life. I am an American Indian, Native American, and grew up on a reservation in the upper Midwest. Our home was 35 miles from the nearest large grocery store. 
Winter can cause treacherous driving conditions as roads can become snow-packed and slippery quickly due to the rural area. One winter, when I was in my early teens, my mother and I drove to the grocery store during a snowstorm to shop for food and other items. The snowstorm had dumped a lot of snow overnight, so we made our purchases and immediately left for home. We left early and were returning in early afternoon. The 35-minute drive would normally take about 45 minutes, but the road was snow-packed, and there were no cars on the road. The wind was drifting, the snow over the road leaving a white plain where the road should have been, making it incredibly hard to see. My mother drove well below the speed limit to drive through drifting snow and not skid off the road. We were at somewhere around the midpoint of the drive, and just past my uncle's house. We did not stop as my mother did not want to get stuck overnight due to the deteriorating road conditions. So, we pressed on. Just past my uncle's house, the road goes over a hill with a long, gentle descent. The snow was falling lightly, and the wind had died down quite a bit, but the road was still covered. Only a long white path lay ahead of us. No tire marks were on either lane, as there had been no other car on the road. As we began to descend the hill, my mother noticed something on the road, so she began to slow the car to a crawl. At first, I thought it was just a log or a piece of wood lying across the road. As we came closer, my mother and I noticed it was a man lying across the road. He was wearing a short-sleeved white t-shirt, jeans with black boots. He was laying face up and his arms spread out like he was trying to make a snow angel. His eyes were closed as he was just lying in the snow. My mother gradually brought the car to a stop and we stared at the man. Slowly, she backed the car up and managed to turn around. She said she wanted to go get my uncle for help. Slowly, we made our way back over the hill and my mother pulled into my uncle's driveway. She got out and went to the house. Soon, my mother appeared with my uncle who was carrying a blanket and another item. He got in and we turned around and started over the hill. No car had passed us and the light was good as it was still early. My uncle was concerned, wondering if the man was hitchhiking and had been messed up by hypothermia or something like that. As we drove over the hill, my uncle was leaning forward near the windshield, trying to see the man on the ground. As we approached where we stopped, we could see the man was no longer laying across the road. There was nothing. The snow beyond our tracks was untouched. We could see our tire tracks where we had stopped and where my mother turned around, but beyond that, the snow on the road was untouched. No car tracks, no animal tracks, no footprints. My uncle got out of the car, saying maybe the man rolled into the ditch or walked after us. He began to search the road in both the ditches, but found nothing. He returned to the car and told my mom to continue into town as he washed the ditches. Slowly, we drove into town, but never saw any cars on the road or any marks on the sides of the road. The man has simply vanished. My uncle told my mom to go to the police so he could report it and then maybe get a ride back to his place with one of the patrolmen. My mother and I both reported the incident and we returned home. I have no explanation for what my mother and I saw. I hope maybe somebody in the comments will be able to help us out. About three years ago, my ex-boyfriend, his two friends, my brother, and I 
went on a night hike. This place is an old, abandoned amusement park off the side of a mountain with access up to the mountain from the amusement park location. This place is well known to the locals, and most people hike there in the day. I have a video of me exploring the amusement park itself with my very brave Boston Terrier. If anyone would like to see it, maybe I'll send it into the channel. My ex-boyfriend had this photo that he asked his friend to send him. At first glance, I assumed his friend had photoshopped the picture. I will also send this in in the future if you guys would like to see it. I was skeptical, because who the heck just takes random pictures of nothingness? I live in a cold state, so we all bundled up and headed up the torn asphalt towards the amusement park. I still remember the air feeling quite still. There was a snowstorm predicted to happen on Christmas Day, so the air had this creepy stillness to it, which made it a lot more exciting. As we headed up the grassy hill passing the amusement park and towards the mountain, things were getting a little intense. My ex-boyfriend, who is my ex for an awfully specific reason, brought along his beloved PBRs. The higher we got up the hillside of the mountain, the drunker he got. When we finally reached the top, they came across a radio tower. This excited my ex and my brother because for some reason they found the need to climb it. I started panicking and told them to get down. At this point, it started misting out. It seemed like the start of the storm. The air was electrifying, and I was extremely anxious. I realized I could not change their mind. So, I did what I could do, and I walked away. I could not stand the idea of seeing my brother plummet to the ground or getting electrocuted. I walked away and towards the tree line. I walked until I reached the side of the rocky cliff. It was way more comforting to be alone even in the darkness. I stood there enjoying the view of the many streetlights twinkling down below. I remember taking deep breaths and just feeling a lot less anxious. The view is always beautiful during the day, but at night it is a whole new experience. It was great until my ex and the whole crew came to join me, except for the idea of joining me was hanging off the side of a cliff. Like, literally cliffhanger style. Maybe they were inspired by those parkour videos. I don't know. But this set me off. Especially since my ex peer pressured my brother into doing it. I started to raise my voice and demanded them to stop. My ex found a small ledge off the side of the cliff to stand on. He yelled at me, Come here right now. You need to see this. I looked over the side and saw the descent our bodies would have to travel until finally reaching the rock bottom. He just kept pushing me to stand on the small ledge. After some time, stupid past version of me decided to give in. I inched my way to the ledge and he told me to turn around and look at the view. I felt like I wanted to cry. He said, isn't it beautiful? I've thought about the plummet. That is all. I wanted to climb back up to safety. I felt dizzy like the world around me was spinning. Finally, I climbed back up. My ex-boyfriend's foot slipped in front of me, and I surely thought that is when it was all over. He was able to catch himself, and I was just hyperventilating. I started to bawl my eyes out. They just would not stop playing that stupid cliffhanger stuff. My ex yelled at me and claimed I was crying to get attention from his two friends. This angered me. I tried to explain myself, but he would not listen. I was afraid for their lives. I was extremely shaken up and angry so I decided to speed walk away from that whole thing. I walked and did not look back. I made my way through the brush and down the grassy hillside. I walked until I could not hear the ridicule from my ex or his criticizing laughter. When finally, I was all alone 
by myself with my overreactive thoughts, with no light but just the moon above me as well as my dead phone. After about 20 minutes of walking, I started to reach the bottom of the hill. The abandoned amusement park buildings were to the left of me, and I had a clear view of the street in front of me. About a football field away, I noticed something that stopped me in my very tracks. I noticed a glowing figure made up of light almost floating up the street towards the amusement park. It was not any car lights because the gates of the amusement park were locked up. This was far away from any civilization to be some sort of illuminating light from a car. It was a figure, and a very tall one, about half the size of the trees around it. The figure illuminated the trees around it. It had massive wings. I distinctly saw what I saw, and as soon as I saw it, I crouched down into a ball with my head between my knees and cradled my head with my arms. I just wept. I was extremely scared and alone with no phone. I was afraid that this being would have seen me or done something to me. I was just way afraid to look up. I just sat there quietly sobbing and waiting to hear something. When after probably ten minutes, I heard my boyfriend singing his stupid drunkard songs from a distance. When they saw me crying, he automatically assumed I was still upset, but when I explained what I had saw, they surprisingly believed me. We stood there staring out into the distance and finally decided to continue walking. We made it back to my car, but for quite a few days, I got very little sleep after this experience. I don't know what that creature was. I don't know if it had something to do with the poor weather conditions. I don't know if it's just something that haunts this mountain. But I'm never, ever going to explore that area, especially with those people. Not in the winter, not when it's snowing. And definitely not at night time. It was Christmas 2008, and I had awoken to a bright, sunny Southern California day. Excited, full of energy, and full of emotions, prepared to head toward LAX so I could board my plane and fly across the country. That year, I was heading toward West Virginia to spend the holidays with friends and family. We would proceed to stay up every night watching movies, playing video games, and telling stories during my vacation there. I would go into more details with the fun and exciting things, including going ice skating, camping, and even feeding some deer in my friend's backyard, but I'm pretty sure you are not really interested in all that. Fair enough, let us focus on the events leading up to my scary encounter including the experience itself. Now, the reason I chose to fly on Christmas Day was because it was way cheaper, which, fun fact, if you travel during the season, choose the 25th. As you know, most families want to already be together on Christmas Day, which is why airlines choose the lower cost for customers on the holiday. Just an FYI. Anyways, I boarded my American Airlines flight at approximately 9 in the morning, and we took off close to around 9.45. The flight itself was boring, consisting of listening to audiobooks and having small conversations with a friendly woman who sat behind me. Fast forward to a little past 7pm. You must remember there is a 3 hour time difference between the east and west coast time. We arrive at the airport on schedule. It had been snowing that evening, so I bundled up in extra layers with my comfortable boots, softening each of my steps. Once I grabbed my luggage, consisting of my carry-on and small suitcase, I head toward the shuttle system just outside the airport 
which was to take me roughly an hour toward the small town that my friend lives in, and drop me off at her mom and dad's bakery. We had planned it this way because my friend, who in this story we'll refer to as Amanda, and her dad would be at the bakery working on some sweets for all of us to enjoy back at her house. Do not get me wrong. They did offer to come pick me up at the airport, and they insisted heavily that it was not an issue, but I insisted further that I would take a shuttle to them. So I did, and about an hour later, I am dropped off at my friend's bakery, and I am greeted by Amanda. Where's your dad? Is it just you? I asked Amanda, as she helps me get the snow-covered suitcase and carry-on into the back room. Oh, he'll be right back. He went to go get some things from home. We proceeded to settle down inside the back room and talked for about 15 minutes or so, catching up and me telling her about my flight. Bear in mind, the lights in front of the bakery, where all the suites are, including the cash register and displays are off, and the We Are Open sign is set to closed. So, anyways, as we are talking enjoying some cookies and milk, we suddenly heard a loud thud and shattering coming from the main lobby. Amanda and I quickly jump out of our seats and then storm through the kitchen door only to be met with one of the worst sights you could possibly imagine. Two hunky large figures with black ski masks covering their face, black sweaters, matching pants, gloves, and boots are now in the bakery and are armed. One has a crowbar and the other has a handgun. I remember everything in slow motion, my life passing before my very own eyes. As the men tell us to be quiet and to show them where the money was located, otherwise we would be in a world of trouble, Amanda tells the men the cash register was empty, but the money was in the back room and placed inside a box. The men approached Amanda and I, and we had briefly headed into the back room, Amanda pointing at said money box placed on a table, while the men have their backs turned toward us. We take this opportunity to book it out of the bakery jumping through the shattered front window and running across the street to a small shopping center. Naturally, everything was closed. It was Christmas after all, so the overall feeling of being isolated without anyone near us for help as it snowed in the darkness was a very real and very scary feeling. Amanda and I both hid behind a large dumpster, keeping a watchful eye on the shop. As Amanda called her dad to warn him about the two armed men, her dad asks us if we are safe. We assure him that we are fine and we are hidden behind a dumpster on the other side of the street. Amanda's dad then advises us to call the police. He then says he would be there in about five minutes with a shotgun. Too bad he did not get there in time, nor did the police, because almost as soon as we are on the line with 911, the two men come racing out of the bakery with the money box I mentioned and run in the complete opposite direction into an alleged alleyway. Twenty seconds later... A black minivan, which we assumed housed the two robbers, was storming down the street and disappears into the cold, dark West Virginia night. Sadly for Amanda and her family, they ended up losing a few thousand dollars that evening, having to cover costs for the damages and the money stolen. But, when all was said and done, they were just so thankful nothing bad happened to either me or their daughter. Nothing was stolen from my belongings, which I was thankful for, as I had all their gifts wrapped neatly in my suitcase. Now, even though we stayed at the bakery longer than expected talking with the police and filing a police report, we eventually returned to Amanda's house at roughly 2 in the morning to open presents and try to get our minds off of what was truly the most frightening experiences of our lives. The police never did catch the men, but in what was perhaps one of the greatest acts of kindness, the town folks came together to help raise the funds for Amanda's family 
to cover the losses from that cold and scary Christmas evening. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true snowstorm horror stories. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps this video out a ton in the YouTube algorithm. If you're new to the channel, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new video as I upload them almost every single day in all things natural and supernatural. If you're listening on iTunes or another podcast service, why not give this podcast a 5-star rating? That helps me out a absolute crap ton over there as well, and it's very much appreciated. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future video, whether it be from a snowstorm, the winter time, or just the outdoors in general, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you're on the go and don't have YouTube Premium, but want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories wherever you go, you can do so absolutely free on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. It's absolutely free and always will be. If you would like to support the Swamp outside of subscribing and hitting that like button, maybe check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, face masks, and more. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool Swamp threads. If you guys aren't aware, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and just about every other social media. If you want to connect with me, get to know me more, or just see what I'm doing outside of YouTube, definitely follow me over there. You can find the links to do so in the description down below. Once again, much thanks and love to my good friend, the Creepy Fox. He helped me read story number three today, and if you enjoyed it, please be sure to subscribe to his channel. You can find the link to do so in the top of the description. He puts out some awesome narrations, and he's been working on an exclusive Creepy Fox anime for a while. I believe it goes by the name of Aria Rose. You should definitely give it a chance, check it out, and give him a subscribe. Thank you guys so much, and I'll see you soon with another creepy video.